Well, good morning again, High Point. Thank you for being here. It's always good to have you here. Thank you for those who have joined us online as well. I'm excited because today we're going to begin a new uh, series that we've titled Chasing God's Heart. I just wanted to see it up on the screen. I'm like really excited about our LED screens, and so I like to look at it every once in a while. This is a study about the life of David, King David, who was aptly given the title, A Man After God's Own Heart. And in preparation, I'd like you to go ahead and turn to, in the Old Testament to the book of uh, 1 Samuel, chapter 16. That's where we're going to be today. And while you're doing that, let me begin by sharing with you that David was a remarkable human being. He was no doubt uh, the single greatest Renaissance man in all of human history. David was a skilled musician. King Saul would call upon David to play his harp in the king's presence because it was the only thing that would uh, cure Saul's depression. David was also a formidable warrior. We all know that he defeated Goliath, this uh, giant, well-trained fighting machine who wasn't used to ever losing at all, but, but he lost to David. And, and, and it was because of David's great courage that he was a respected warrior, and because of that, he attracted the best and most loyal soldiers to fight and serve under him. David was also a poet. He so eloquently wrote many of the Psalms that we read today. Most of those express the longing of the human heart for God. And today his Psalms remain the, the single most moving devotional material that's ever been written. David was also a statesman. He possessed tremendous wisdom and, and great political skill. During his reign, Israel achieved its highest level of economic and political stability in its entire history. The Bible also tells us that David was an extremely attractive person. We are told on many occasions he wasn't just physically attractive, but his personality was attractive as well. So David possessed many qualities that made him an unusually gifted and revered leader. And that's why there is so much that has been written about him. In fact, there are 60, about 66 chapters in the Word of God that are devoted to him. He's mentioned 600 times in the Old Testament, another 60 times in the New Testament. And as I said, that's because he was a truly remarkable man. But in our text today, God says that what really made David such a remarkable person was not his external accomplishments, but instead it was his heart. He had a wonderful heart that was very much in tune to God. David loved God. He wanted to please the Lord. He, he, he desired to bring glory to God in the way that he lived his life. And my prayer is that through this series, as we learn more details about David's heart, that we will change ourselves because of what we have learned and that we will align our hearts completely towards God, because after all, that's what a God-centered life is all about, amen? amen? Well, we first meet David in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Israel has now been freed from slavery in Egypt, and they have been living in the Promised Land under judges like Joshua and Gideon and Samson. The last judge that led Israel was Samuel, 
But now the people of God, the people of Israel wanted a king. So God had Samuel appoint one. The first king was Saul. He was an impressive man as well. Saul was tall and handsome. He stood head and shoulders above most of the people of Israel. But Saul became increasingly corrupt and violent and evil, and God had literally given up on him. It says in 1 Samuel 13, 14, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So God speaks to the, the prophet Samuel, who has now become old and whose time on this earth is nearing an end. And if you will go to 1 Samuel chapter 16, we are going to read verses 1 through 13, and we're going to discover what God has to say. 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13, I'll be reading from the New King James. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things other people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down till he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Here's what happens uh, during this whole thing we just read. God tells Samuel, I want you to go and I want you to anoint a new king. And, and Samuel says, but God, we, we already have a king and he's sitting on the throne. And furthermore, it's probably not going to be very good to my health to go and do such a thing since he's there. But God says, just do what I tell you to do, Samuel. So Samuel goes to this obscure village called Bethlehem. Have you ever heard of that place before? And you'll notice it says in verse four that the elders of the town trembled when they saw Samuel coming their way. You see, Samuel the prophet was not known for his small talk. 
When he arrived on the scene, it meant that there was some serious business that needed to be accomplished on the Lord's behalf. So the people of the village were wondering by his presence who had sinned. They thought that maybe somebody was in serious trouble. That's why they trembled in fear. But Samuel says, it's okay. God's going to give great honor to your town. The leader of his people is going to come from Bethlehem. So Samuel invites the elders and Jesse's family to this event. And Jesse, the father, is so proud, he can hardly stand it. Now I want you to try to picture this scene for just a moment. As Jesse introduces his first son, his heir, He's always known that this kid was destined for greatness. I mean, he was the class president and the quarterback at Bethlehem High School. He, he was an outstanding young CEO potential guy. And, and so this young man, he pulls up in his Porsche Carrera and he, and he has this commanding presence and he walks into the room and, and his presence literally dominates the room. And Jesse proudly says, this is my son, Eliab. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but in Hebrew, the name Eliab means you the man. I, I just made that up. Jesse says, yeah, he's the man. And the elders all nod their heads and they say, yeah, he's the man. But Samuel looks at him and he says, you may think he's the man, but God doesn't. He's not the man. So then Jesse has son number two, Abinadab, come in and, and he's not the man either. And then he has son number three come in, Shema, but he's not the man either. And Samuel does, all, does this with all seven of his sons that are present in that house. We don't even get their names, yet every one of them is paraded before the prophet Samuel, and nobody's the man. And Samuel is now a little bit perplexed, and he's thinking, God, why in the world did you send me way out here in the middle of nowhere to reject seven different sons? So Samuel says just to Jesse, are these the only sons you have? Seems like kind of a dumb question, doesn't it? I mean, I'm sure Jesse's aware of how many boys he has. But then Jesse says in almost an afterthought, well, there's still my youngest son. What's his name out there tending the sheep? And you need to understand in Hebrew, the term youngest means not merely the last born, but it also means the lowest in rank. It's the lowest in the pecking order. You see, this whole birth order thing is very important, very significant in that day. And we even experience a little bit of that in our own time. I mean, how many of you here were the firstborn of your family? Raise your hand. Now, you got all the breaks. How many of you were the lastborn like me? If you're the lastborn, we're like Rodney Dangerfield. We get no respect whatsoever. And there are 30-year-olds and below that go, who is Rodney Dangerfield? <laughs> and I know I'm showing my age, but for the rest of you guys that are more mature, you know what I'm talking about. And that was a good joke. <laughs> Jesse says, well, my youngest son is out there in the pasture. He's tending to my sheep, but I'm sure he's not the man either. Samuel says, go for him and we will wait. Now imagine this, I'm sure it took a considerable amount of time to go out in that field and find David who is somewhere tending to Jesse's sheep. And Samuel tells him, furthermore, we won't sit down until he arrives. So all seven of his sons are standing there. 
And I'm sure that they're feeling like runner-up to the Miss America pageant around this time. And, and they're trying their best to look like everything is okay in their hearts, but they're secretly hoping that the real winner dies or something so they can be the man. Well, they finally reach David, and David comes pulling up on his BMX bicycle. And it's got a ripped seat, and it's got a primer paint job, and doesn't look like much. And God looks at David, and he says to Samuel, that's the one. That's the man. He's the one. Now, there's a theme going on here. And it kind of runs throughout the Old Testament. It has to do with the reversal of the birth order. Because in those days, as I said, being born first was such a big deal. And you need, not, and you need to look at the thread that, that follows in the Old Testament regarding the people of God. Ishmael is born first, but God chose Isaac. Esau comes first, but God has the lineage go through Jacob. Ten other brothers are born first, but God chooses Joseph. And seven other brothers were born first, but God uses the youngest, David, to become the king of Israel. Now, what does that say to you? Is God saying that the firstborn are spoiled brats and, and he likes the babies of the family better? Yes, absolutely, that's what he's saying. Do you think I have a chip on my shoulder about being the youngest? I'm, I'm not sure. In those days, everything went to the firstborn. All rights, all property, all privileges. It's just the way it was in that structure, in that culture. But God is clearly breaking out of cultural practices of that day, and he's doing a new thing. You see, he's neither bound or beholden to any human system or any human tradition. God is at work, and his kingdom is going to shake some things up. And God summarizes it all in verse 7 when he says this to Samuel. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, let's talk about that for just a minute because it's an important statement that we cannot afford to distort. So let's make clear what... This doesn't mean, first, it doesn't mean that gifts or talents or strengths don't matter to God, because they certainly do. In fact, when we read about David, we find out so many more things about him. I shared a few of them with you earlier. He, is, he knows how to play the harp skillfully. He's, he's a brave man. He is a warrior on the battlefield. He speaks well. He is fine looking. These are things we find out about David. The text doesn't say David is a mediocre musician. It doesn't say that he is a coward or that he is unattractive. It doesn't say he's a poor speaker or funny looking. Therefore, God can't really use him. It doesn't say that. What the scripture points out here is that gifts and talents and strengths are not bad things or not things that God cannot use in our lives. It's that the human race has, has inevitably tended to obsess over the outward appearance. We tend to look at charm and attractiveness and ability and those other traits that lead to outward accomplishments. We tend to think those things are the only things that matter. We also tend to think that if I possess those things in obvious, visible ways, then I'm a blessed human being. But if I don't have them in, in, in obvious, visible ways, then for some reason I'm insignificant and I do not matter. 
And then we completely forget about the issues of the heart, which to God are the most important thing. But what God says over and over and over again, and he's saying to some of you here this morning, in his kingdom, everybody matters. I don't care who you are or what you do, you matter to our Lord. In his kingdom, that means you and me, everybody counts. In God's kingdom, everybody has something to offer. In God's kingdom, everybody contributes something, the last born as well as the firstborn. So if you take the best gifts that you have, whatever they are, do not compare them to somebody else's. You'll depress yourself. All I got to do is flip through Christian television and watch some of these preachers preach, and I go, my goodness, how do they do that? How does T.D. Jakes walk back and forth across the state and never look at a note in his life? It's just this stuff comes pouring out. And I go, I want to be like that, but I'm not. I have notes. That's how I operate, so deal with it. <laughs> I do have a chip on my shoulder, don't I? You know? If you take a heart that is full of devotion and you combine that with the gifts God has given you and you lay those at the feet of the Lord, watch out. That is what I would call a surefire recipe for success. And it's a very powerful thing. So God says to Samuel, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And that's exactly what he found in David. Now the question is what makes David's heart so appealing to God. What is it about David's heart that, that makes it one that is after God's own heart? That's what I want to spend the remaining time this morning talking about as we get to know David. I, I want to talk about three things that I believe made David's heart so beautiful in the sight of God. And I hope that as we work through this series, that God will build up my heart and he will build up your heart and all of us who make up this body of believers called High Point Assembly. And, and, and I also invite you to do a heart check of your own as we walk through this series to see how your heart measures up to some of these qualities that we're gonna talk about throughout this series that King David had. Because as we get to know David, I believe that you are going to see that there are some specific characteristics within his heart that every one of us should strive for. And here's number one. David's heart was characterized by a sense of reckless abandon. In other words, he was fully abandoned to God. And abandoned means unrestrained and uninhibited. There's a common line from the Psalms associated with David. In Psalm 9:1, David says, I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. That statement occurs again in Psalm 86 and again in Psalm 111. David has a, a, an unguarded, passionate heart, and he never held it back. He wasn't calculating and cautious with his heart. He was generous and he was free. Once the Ark of the Covenant was being brought into Jerusalem, it's a moment that symbolized the fact that God was present and he was reigning with his people. And we're gonna take a look at this story in depth a little bit later on in the series, but it says in 2 Samuel 6.14, and try to get a visual on this, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. David, the king of Israel, got lost 
in his praise. He was just dancing there with pure joy in his heart. And his wife, she's embarrassed. And she tries to stifle his actions and his expression of worship to the God, to God. So much so that she sarcastically says in 2 Samuel 6.20, the second part of that verse, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. That's what she says to her husband, the king. And David replies in 2 Samuel 6.22, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will and I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by those, these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. The reason I love that so much is that I was raised in a very conservative, non-expressive home. We were never reckless with our actions. We were seldom reckless with our emotions. You know, keep a stiff upper lip was kind of, kind of the mindset. We were taught to be respectable in all things and at all times, always concerned about what other people thought. And honestly, it still affects me today. It's just, you know, you get that inbred in you and you kind of, it's just a part of your life and you have to try to break through those things. And I just love to see as David gives his heart to God with wild abandon. And, and we see this characteristic of David found a number of times. In 2 Samuel 23, David and his mighty men are pinned down by a, by a band of Philistine, Philistines. Apparently, it was some kind of a, of a siege. And David, during this battle, becomes uh, parched and, and thirsty. And he cries out about the water from a specific well near Jerusalem. And based upon his words alone, three of his top men, they risk their lives to break through the enemy lines. They go to that well and they draw water and they bring it back to David. It was a moment of unbelievable drama. And of course, his troops are there and they're all watching. Now you gotta understand that every one of those men was as parched with thirst as David. But there was only enough water for the king. And David is so moved by the courage of these men and their sacrifice that he takes the water and he pours it on the ground. And he says in 2 Samuel 23, 17, far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? He's so moved by what these guys did that in spite of his thirst, he says to his men, I will be with you through thirst and deprivation, as well as in prosperity. I will not use my kingship to provide me comfort at the expense of your pain. We're in this thing together, win or lose, live or die. One time David was commanded to build an altar on the threshing floor of a man named Arana, the Jebusite. And this man saw David and his men approaching. And he said to them, take my threshing floor, take my oxen for a sacrifice, and take my wood for fuel for the fire. It's my gift to you. And David becomes so overwhelmed with gratitude towards God that he says in 2 Samuel 24, 24, no, I insist on paying for it. I love this line. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Now from a cost benefit standpoint, this doesn't make much sense. It's a free gift. 
You don't have to pay a dime for it. We hear a lot about impulse buying in our culture today. But when was the last time you indulged yourself in impulse giving? David was an impulsive giver. One day in the midst of peace, a peaceful time, David comes to a realization that he expresses to Nathan the prophet. When he says in 2 Samuel 7, 2, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. And then he commits at that moment that he's going to build a tabernacle in order to host it in. As a shepherd boy and not yet a man, he goes to the front lines of battle. His father had sent him there to take food to his sons, his brothers, David's brothers, and a commanding officer. Israel is being challenged by their, their very best warrior, a, a pagan giant named Goliath. And all the soldiers, the Israel soldiers, were shaking in their boots. They were intimidated. David says in 1 Samuel 17, 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He is wondering in his heart why everybody is sitting there scared and allowing this giant to insult his God. So he says, I'll go fight him. He's going down. And he did. David's passionate heart was extended to God with a reckless abandon. And I want to have a heart like that. I don't want to go to my grave with a heart that, that is cold, that is calculating, that is protected, that is safe, that, that is hard. And I don't think any of us want to do that. I want to have a heart like David's. My prayer, and I, and I want to be a part of a fellowship with a bunch of people that have a passionate heart like David. My prayer is that through this series, you'll begin to worship God with more passion than you ever have before in your life. That someone, some of you will begin to outwardly uh, live for the Lord, not in a stealth-like manner anymore, not worrying about what people think. That some of you will be moved to expressions of, of, of gratitude and tears of joy or conviction like you've never had before. My prayer is that some of you will be moved to give to God and that you'll give with a sense of, of abandon and sacrifice like you've never given before, with the kind of generosity that marked the heart of David. That some of you will say, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. My prayer for some in this room is that you'll begin to show courage. That whenever you hear of a need within this church to serve in some capacity, you will cast your fears aside and you'll say to yourself, I will take this on. I will sign up for that assignment. I will use my gifts and I will glorify God while he's using me. My prayer is that you will show courage in a relationship or in a ministry, or in an act of service. Courage that you never thought you had. You didn't know it was in you, and you still don't think it's in you right now, but it is. And my prayer for all of us is that through this series, we will develop hearts of courage, and that we will be abandoned to God. Well, David's heart was characterized not just by wild abandon, but here's the second thing. David's heart was characterized by deep reflection. David wrote in Psalm 139.23, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. This is but another scripture that gives us a glimpse into the heart that David has. 
And, and that's a, a really a rare combination when you think about the first two traits, traits, passionate action on one hand and deep reflection on the other hand. But that was David. He was wildly abandoned, and yet he was a deeply reflective person. And I'll tell you, I believe David's heart for God was formed over all those years when he was alone. When he was out there in those fields with the sheep all by himself. During those times when the only one he had to talk to besides sheep was God. And I think that that is the only explanation possible for a soul that could write words like Psalm 23, one through three, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. You see, David spent much of his time waiting. As a kid, he waited as he tended sheep, but then there's that amazing day when Samuel comes along and anoints him as king. I want you to try to imagine what the day after that looked like for David. Because David doesn't just get up the next day and, 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 and march into Jerusalem and sit on the throne. There's still a king there. Saul is the king, the reigning king at this time. Plus, Samuel split. Scriptures say he went on to Ramah. So what does David do the very next day? He goes back to tending sheep. Just imagine that happening to you. Try, you know, try to think about that for a minute. All those years he was leading a flock of sheep through the wilderness. And all those weird years, however, were not wasted years. He was learning to be alone with God. He was growing deeply in his faith and his trust in God, his understanding of the Lord. Then you had all those years that he was hiding from Saul when Saul was trying to have him killed because Saul knew he was the king. He lived in caves. He ran from one place to another. Those were not wasted years. He was growing in a very deep trust and relationship with God. In solitude and in quiet, David was shaping that great heart, that deep heart, that devoted heart that we're talking about. And that's what God wants to develop in each one of us today. And he will, if you'll just give him the chance. If you'll determine to give him some of your precious time, he will develop that in you as well. Do you ever get tired of all the noise and clatter that comes out of our world? I believe that it is responsible for a whole lot of superficiality. It's been said that superficiality is the curse of our age. I think the primary reason for the lack of depth in our society is the sheer volume of noise and information that we get bombarded with moment by moment. Because what we really need is moments of solitude. Solitude is really, really important. Henry Nouwen wrote, wrote this, solitude, solitude molds self-righteous people into gentle, forgiving people who are so deeply convinced of their own great sinfulness and so fully aware of God's even greater mercy that their life itself becomes a ministry. Amen. And herein lies my prayer for all of us, not to simply attend this church, but that our very lives become a ministry. 
I think it is safe to believe that after the year that, that after the years that David, that when David's heart, let me let me rephrase this, when David's heart became the most vulnerable after he decided to be the king, after he was anointed king and actually took that position. I believe that 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 was when things became more difficult for David. He became a king. He had everything that anybody could ever possibly dream of. He was surrounded by people at that point and noise and kingly responsibilities and duties. And I am certain that his alone time with God suffered. And so David, like us, had to find time to be with God. And he did. And I want to have a heart like that that finds time to spend devoted time with God. You know, one of the things I do very regularly is read the Psalms. Some of you like to go all through the Bible and study from book to book. It doesn't matter. However you study the Bible is fine. I happen to enjoy the Psalms. I like to read them. So many of them are attributed to David. And it starts in the first chapter of Psalm with a great image of a tree. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. And I love this, whatever they do prospers. As you begin to delight in the Lord, as you begin to, to delight in the Lord, your life truly does become a ministry. You see, you can't develop a root system quickly. It just doesn't work that way. And in our fast food mindset of a society, we really get impatient. And we, we start to think that everything should happen for us fast. But understand, most good things in life are developed over time. When was the last time that you described somebody saying that person is hurried and deep? You usually don't do that. You can be hurried and you can be deep, but it's hard to be hurried and deep at the same time. It just really is. Now, I want you to understand, I'm not suggesting that you quit your job and you go out and become shepherds in the field. That that's not God's will for your life. But it does mean that you're going to have to guard some of your time. You're going to have to plan to have regular unhurried times alone with the Lord. Times of solitude. Think of how different it would be if everybody here took the time that David did to be shepherded by God. In fact, let me give you a challenge as we embark upon this series. I challenge you to go through the Psalms because you're going to learn a lot about David within this, the scriptures that you read. But you're also going to learn a lot about communicating with God. More people have learned to pray through the Psalms than any other source. I even read that Martin Luther would pray the Psalms. He used Psalms to help him pray every single day of his life. Some of the Psalms will teach you how to worship. Others will, will teach you how to express great thanks and great joy. Some of the Psalms will show you to how to express to God your confusion or even a complaint. Some of them will teach you how to make confession, how to repent. I don't know, maybe you want to write some psalms of your own to God and become a personal psalmist yourself. But I promise you this, if you will immerse yourself in the prayers of David in the psalms, 
It will change your heart. It will. So David had a heart that was characterized by wild abandon, and he had a heart that was characterized by deep reflection. But the third thing, and the one that I want most of all, is David's heart was characterized by stubborn love. Psalm 78, 72 says this about David. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. The idea is here that he had an undivided heart. That's the opposite, in my opinion, of being fickle. He loved people with the loyal heart of a shepherd. A shepherd who just keeps loving the sheep, even the obstinate ones. I mean, I think, I, I think of the people in David's life. You got Saul, who was once a, a, a young, promising young king himself, who becomes increasingly corrupt. He becomes tormented by jealousy towards David. Saul constantly deceived David. Several times he tried to kill David. And what's most amazing about it is through it all, David still loved Saul. Twice, David could have killed Saul, and he would have been justified in doing so, but he refused to do that. He expressed his loyalty back to Saul. And when Saul finally died, listen to what David wrote to lament for him in 2 Samuel 1.19. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. 2 Samuel 1.24. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul. How could David find tears for a man like that? He knew all about uh, Saul's flaws more than anybody else. But you know what? He also knew about Saul's possibilities. And he loved him right up until the end. And then there's Jonathan, Saul's son, who would have been David's main rival for the throne. You would expect that these two would be at each other's throats. I mean, they were set up for that, but they had one of the greatest friendships in history. And when they had to be separated, the Bible says that they wept together, but David wept the most. And many, many years later, when Saul and Jonathan had both gone, had been both gone a long time, David said in 2 Samuel 9:1, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? for Jonathan's sake. So they brought before him a son of Jonathan, a man named Mephibosheth. You should try saying that three times fast. He was crippled in both feet. He was scared to death. He bowed before David, expecting the worst because he could be seen as a rival to the throne or exiled or worse yet, the king could have had him killed. But David looks at this powerless, disabled man, and he says this in 2 Samuel 9, 7. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. David, in essence, is saying to him, don't be afraid. I loved your father, and now I just want to love you. You can come, be a part of my family, be like a son to me. Second Samuel 9, 8 says, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? But David had no part in that. He encouraged him. Then there's David's own son, Absalom, 
a, a, a renegade rebel who tried to overthrow his own father and take the throne away from him. But at the end, Absalom was defeated. He was killed in battle. And when David got the word from his forces that he had been victorious, his throne was secure and he would continue to reign, his only response was to mourn for his son. He said in 2 Samuel 18.33, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. You see, when David loved you, you stayed loved because there was a grace and a love in his heart for even the most stubborn sinner. And I don't know about you, but I want to love that way. As I was preparing this message, I couldn't help but think of my wife and my daughter. I thought about my life and I thought about my friends. I thought about many of you who make up this church. And I thought about so many people who cross my path on a daily basis. And at the end of my life, if it could be said about me that he loved with a stubborn kind of love, that that David Blythe had grace in his heart and love for fallen people. And when he loved somebody, they stayed loved. If those kind of things could be said about me at the end of my life, then I think I'd be a success in God's eyes, no matter what else I did or didn't do. I want a heart that loves with a stubborn kind of love. In David's most famous psalm, he writes these wonderful words at the end of Psalm 23, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Author Lynn Anderson, who wrote about David, points out that maybe his greatest stubbornness was his stubborn love for God. He writes this, maybe David was an old man when he said these words with a long gray beard and wrinkled face. Maybe he remembered when he was young and handsome and that strange old man Samuel poured oil over him and said the mysterious words that started it all. Maybe he remembered how on that day, so long ago, the spirit of the Lord came on him. Maybe he remembered how he decided when he was a young man, the way that young men do when he was king, things would be different. He'd get things right. And sometimes he did, and sometimes he didn't. A lot of times he didn't. A lot of times he got stuff wrong. But he loved God with this stubborn love. And something inside of him said, I will dwell in the house. He didn't say, I hope to dwell in the house. He didn't say, perhaps someday I'll dwell in the house. He was a stubborn guy, this David. He had a heart of a racehorse, and he said, I'm staying in the house. I know I make a mess sometimes, and I may spill on the rug and knock down the lamps and break all the expensive stuff. I know what a pain it is to have me in the house, but I'll tell you what, you're going to have to drag me out kicking and screaming. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, David just had a stubborn love, and his most stubborn love was his love that he reserved for the Lord. And as I've been thinking about David, the thought occurred to me, what if God were to say to us to make up this body of believers that they all loved with a stubborn kind of love? They followed me with reckless abandon. They worshiped me from the depths of their soul and their heart. They loved with a stubborn kind of love. What if God were to say that about us? 
I pray that that's your heartfelt desire this morning. Scott, will you guys come forward and help me close this down? I'd like to ask all of you to stand in your, to your feet if you would. The reason that I wanted to do this series is because it is our heart that makes all the difference in our life and in this world. Every one of us in this place, at some point in our life, have been a part of something. We've volunteered to do something. We've accepted some form of responsibility. And when we did, we realized that our heart just wasn't into it. So we went through the motions. We did what was required of us. But that's about as far as it went. And I just want to say to you this morning, if you're going to live the abundant life that Jesus promised us, your heart's got to be into it. This cannot be something casual. I guess what I'm saying is you're, you can't serve the Lord in a half-hearted way. You gotta decide whether you're in or out. I think the Bible makes very, very clear that God dislikes lukewarmness when it comes to your faith. And as you read about those in the Bible who did great exploits for the kingdom of God, you quickly realize that they were deeply rooted and they were deeply devoted in their relationship with the Lord. They love the Lord and they live for his purposes to be, to be achieved in their lives. My greatest fear as your pastor is that too many of us are so concerned with what other people think that we're much too stealth-like in our faith outside of these walls. We're different within these walls. This is safe, we're comfortable, we're among fellow believers. But when we get out of here, we don't let our light shine the way that God would want us to. And in ways that most people would not even notice if we were. And that is one serious issue that comes from being half-hearted or lukewarm in our faith. But there's another problem that, that this creates. Because if you never really allow yourself to be tested or to be challenged by God, you'll never experience his power in your life. You never will. And you're basically living your whole life without an abundance that only God can provide. And your walk with Jesus becomes boring and fruitless. It's no wonder it's boring. And it's no wonder you're bearing no fruit. There's one thing that I would like this congregation to exhibit within this community of Red Bluff is an excitement for God and a great trust and a great faith, and a great belief in Him. And guess what? That comes when you take the time to spend some alone time with God. When you take some risks in your faith. When you step out of your comfort zone and allow yourself to finally be used by God. I'm talking of this morning about turning over some of your deepest fears, some of your deepest concerns and hang-ups and hurts, turn them over to God and watch as he makes a new creation out of you. You develop a heart that is after God's heart. And when you experience him, when you start to experience him in tangible ways. You see, God cannot be some concept to you where you say, well, I've tried everything else, so now I'm going to try God. No, you've got to embrace him fully. You gotta cast aside all those other things that, that, that hinder you from committing to him completely.
There are people here today and you've gotten real casual about your faith and it shows in your lack of attention towards the things of God. He's become an afterthought, meaning he's only thought of after you think of everything else in your life. When God wants to be the first one that you go to with any issue, any need, he wants to be your very source. He wants to be the one that you run to in any time of need. He wants to develop a heart inside of you like he had in David. But it will only happen when you decide him to be Lord over all of your life, not just portions of your life. He can't be a part of your church life and not be a part of your professional life or be a part of your family life or be a part of your social life. He's got to be a part of all of it. There are others here today and you've never asked Jesus into your heart. You've never asked him. You've never asked to receive the salvation that only he can provide. The Bible says to be saved, you must confess and believe. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. All that means is you pray a prayer of, of, of confession and belief. You pray that with sincerity of heart. You don't just do it because I tell you to do it. You do it because you want to do it. And with the intention after that prayer of living a different kind of a life, you confess your sin before him. You say, I want you to be the Lord over my life. He will cleanse you, the Bible says, of all unrighteousness. You begin to live a new life. And it's a new life free of all the baggage from your past. Your story starts over again. Some of you here today, you need a touch in your physical body. We've gotten some news from a physician that has frightened you. Some of you here are captured by fear. You're worried about something that you're going to face very, very soon. And you need to find some peace in your heart and strength to face this difficulty head on. Some of you here need reconciliation in a relationship in your life. It could be your spouse. It could be a child. It could be a friend, a parent. You don't know where to start, but God does. And if you come down to this altar, I believe he will show you what your next step is. I want to open this altar today for anyone who wants to come here and pray, present your needs, your position, your petitions, your weaknesses, and yes, your fears before God. Allow him to develop in you, to begin to develop in you a heart after his own heart. So as the worship team sings, please feel free to come forward. Give Anthony and I some time to lay hands and pray for you. And after that, we will close this service in prayer.
restore every heart that is broken. And great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath. Let's lift him up, let's all the earth and, and, and all 
those at the altar continue to pray, they can stay here and pray as long as they want. I'd like to close this service in prayer if you'd bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for men and women who stories just simply amaze us. We see supernatural things occurring. We see lives being lived in ways that sometimes seem far from us. And we, we wonder, but God, there are only individuals who humbled themselves before you and allowed you to do tremendous works in and through them. And the word, your word says that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You do not change. And so you can do great things in and through us. And one of those things, Father, that we desire is a heart that loves you, a heart that chases after you, a heart of courage, a heart of love, a heart of compassion. And Father, that's what I hope you will draw our attention to over these next several weeks as we go through this story of David and the way he's lived his life. Not that he lived it perfectly, because we know and we will see he made mistakes but he was always yielded to you, God, and you always continue to work in and through him. That's the desire for our lives. That is the desire for this church, God, that you would use us in a mighty way to reach this community for Jesus Christ. So I pray, Lord, that as we go our separate ways today, that your Holy Spirit would not just go with us, but it would challenge us. You would challenge us, Father, in the way that we live our lives, the, the things we do, the places we go, the conversations that we have, that those conversations would be ones that would build people up and not tear them down. Father, that we would shine like bright lights in a very dark world. And that we would shine so brightly that people would recognize that there is something different about us and that's the love of Christ coming through. So I pray you'll be with us, Father. Pray that you will strengthen us this week, prepare us uh, for our work week ahead and all the responsibilities that come our way Allow us to walk victoriously in Christ through all of it. There will be minefields that we will have to dodge. There will be difficulties that will come our way. But God, we can do all things through you who strengthens us. Let us stand upon that promise. So until we meet together again next week, Lord, I pray you'll keep us safe from sickness and disease. You'll keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us. Anything that would prevent us from coming together and worshiping together as a church family in spirit and in truth. And Lord, as we go our way today, I pray that we would go in love and we would love those who we come into contact with. And I ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.